Pictures. I'm your host, Brent Gunn. I'm your co-host, Mitchell Kakalka. You haven't heard from us in... A couple weeks, I think. A couple years. It's mm-hmm. been a while. Seems like forever. Um, I've been really busy. Mm-hmm. In addition to, you know, the multiple things that I have going on in my life, I decided to sign a minor. Okay. So a political science minor. Nice. And uh, there are three of the headiest classes I've ever taken at CMU, <laughs> probably in college. Um, so I'm constantly stressed and, and, and uh, worried about college for the first time in like the three years I've been in college. So mm. that's a pretty good pacing. But uh, got a new job here at CMU, podcast editor. Nice, really nice. So um, compared to past jobs, this is like Jeff Bezos. Like this is, this is like a, like there's air conditioning here. <laughs> I have access to water most days. I'm, I'm paid. I'm paid. <laughs> Um, I don't have to get hit, yelled. Well, day it no, no. Anyway, I you know it's it's it, it's it's a it's a great job. I'm just I've just been incredibly busy, and we've been too busy to record the podcast. Mm-hmm. There's no like big like YouTuber like deep reason. I, I I've just been very very busy. But since we've been busy, we kind of wanted to give you a kind of all encompassing episode. Um, we've been doing this show for about a year now. Yeah. And actually, Mitch, you're not going to be doing the show with us for very much longer. You're only going to have a couple episodes with us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then I'm going to have to carry the torch um, somehow. I think, um, yeah, you mentioned we, we've been doing that. You and I have been doing this for about a year. I think our first episode that we did together was about like obscure horror movies around this time of year. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that was the first one. I think it was The Witch. We, we talked about The Witch. The Witch. Um, it follows... Yeah, kind of. Um, May, May, May as well. Oh, I a love lot of films May. like that. Great movie. But I think before that, you you had kind of like set a precedent for doing for the show being kind of. Um, I think I think I wanted it to be a, a movie show or a movie themed podcast that didn't necessarily talk about films in the way that every other podcast or social mm-hmm. media outlet seemed to. And that's not me saying that like I, you know, I do anything you know outside of the box or you know unique or anything, but. I don't know. I, I, I just wanted to talk about I wanted to have the film conversations that I wanted to have with people that, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have a lot of people in my life that are like movie fans. And I'm not like some hardcore cinephile, but um, I just wanted to have like a, a conversational show. And uh, the last year, I think we've basically accomplished that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think we've steered clear of, you know, bad reviewer isms. Mm-hmm. We've probably done them without knowing at least once or twice maybe once or twice i think um we got a cease and desist from uh uh, dinesh d'souza we got no we didn't i i i I was i'm waiting for one though i i'm I'm i hope (laughs) i guess i want to tag him on twitter like when i posted that episode i want to see (laughs) you listen to this we want to do something that we've never really done on the show um we've alluded to it a lot just based on how we talk about movies but we've never really had a show just telling you who we really are as movie fans. Mm-hmm. So I guess starting with you, Mitch, I mean, you're, you're, you're not like, you know, a hardcore cinephile. I know that you're maybe not like the biggest movie guy and, you know, I, I may not be like the biggest movie guy either, but mm-hmm. I think that we both, the, the, the films that we love, we appreciate for kind of more specific reasons. So I guess like, what are your specific reasons? Like what's, what is it about a certain film that will connect with you more than another? I was just thinking about this, um, the other day exactly like what kind of films I like because when I look at um 
film wise i'm kind of like the person who you ask oh what kind of music do you like Like, oh i I like everything yeah when i look at like the kind of movies i like i really just i have like such an eclectic but i was looking i guess like the my favorite looking at like a list of my favorite films um i really like films that aren't necessarily set in one genre or set in the kind of like one filmmaking mindset i really like um films and some of my favorite directors like Paul Thomas Anderson and Bong Joon-ho um, have said in interviews that they purposely like making films like this, but films that you don't really know, you can't really put them in a genre. You can't really even say they're like a certain type of mood. Like um, I just watched uh, the, the host for the first time actually by Bong Joon-ho. And one thing that really struck me about that movie was how it's not really a horror movie. There's a lot of comedic elements. There's a, there's dramatic elements as well. And it's kind of like a collective of like these different genres, and th- and they, it it does all of them like very well. Um, and that's something that I've liked about all of Bong Joon Ho's films. Um, Okja from last year, Snowpiercer from 2013. Um, and I I know I might get shanked for saying this in front of you, but Edgar Wright as well uh, of a filmmaker who I loved in high school my I've, I haven't like I haven't like taken that love to like worship as as much as like some people have in college but one thing I, I really like about like some of his better films is that there's a lot of comedy but there's also a lot of I think genuinely delivered um attempts at like character drama um my favorite film by his um at world's end or the world's end is has a lot of moments like that like a lot of moments that like personally i have been in that um they're like played completely straight um that still don't disrupt the thro- the flow of what's generally a comedy movie careful <clears throat> floor's a bit pissy wasn't me that was me did that back in 90 1990 Punch the shit out of the wall. I don't know why. Seemed important at the time. You guys look like you're having a good night, though. I'm doing the Golden Mile tonight. You wanna tag along? You could be like the Six Musketeers. I said we're doing the Golden Mile. You think you're so cool, don't you? Huh? But we were cooler. We own this town. Paved the way for you lot. We blazed a trail. Hey, look at me when I'm talking to you. Please don't. Oh, don't what? You don't want to do that. (laughs) Well, don't I? You know, I, I talk a lot of crap about Edgar Wright, and I think... At the end, it's just not, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. I'm just not the target demographic. Yeah. I think it's more targeted at, like, Doctor Who fans and, uh, mm. like, those those girls that were in drama in, like, sixth grade and they wore, like, the um, the arm sleeves that they would put their thumbs through. Yeah, thanks, Brent. Like Jack uh, Skellington ones, sorry. but uh, I prefer to think of it. It's more just he's targeting people who have good taste in movies. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Probably. Would 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 you say that At World's End is like a defining f- film for you, like as like as far as your taste goes? Yeah, that's that's like one. I think yeah, I think in um on Facebook when they had that ten ten films that impact you thing that you did like once a day, mm-hmm. I think At World's End was one of the movies that um oh I just came up with 
the per- he, he's he's aiming for Tarantino fans who snort Pixie sticks. That's that's <laughs> yeah. What, that's, all right, I'll I'll, I'll I'll agree with that. Tarantino fans that say that they're Tarantino fans, but they're really just Wes Anderson fans. Oh yeah, that's that's perfect actually. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Man, that, I, that's a hot we, take. I'm glad we finally came to this agreement. We, fin- <laughs> we finally like buried this axe. That's a take I didn't think I was going to say today. <laughs> I'm, I'm proud of myself. I haven't had to take that good in... It's been a while, man. For me, I think that the films that I tend to like the most are the ones that I think capture things that I like the most about real life, and that may seem mm. like a very pretentious answer. But you're talking to a person that, like, reads film theory sometimes in his mm-hmm. spare time. And, like, I don't think I'm hot shit for doing it. But, you, like, I have a genuine interest in mm-hmm. film as, like, one, like, something that can be, like, entertaining and that can just be, like, a, a comforting art form. And that can also just be, like, I'm interested in what it is, like, as a form, too. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, like, a whole discussion for another day. But my, my favorite thing is, you know, characters. Because, like, yeah. you know. People in in your life tend to give you the most, I think, kind of like valuable moments, the yeah. most valuable uh, interactions. Um, you observe the most, I think, from people. I mean, mm-hmm. like it, it, it's a pretty obvious statement. You know, the world's filled with people. People do, you know, basically everything that's done in the world. Yeah. And the first film that like I would probably throw into that camp is a uh, American Splendor, which is a film that we talked about on the show. A while ago about I think right when we were just getting started that was one of our episodes yeah um and it takes a look at a character who you know is not not only just an, an, an inspiration as an artist but also just kind of a human being that I kind of the more I learn about him I kind of feel a lot of like solidarity to in some ways mm-hmm. uh Harvey P. Carr the film American Splendor you know it, it took a look at his life and for those who don't know Harvey P. Carr was a an, an American comic book writer and uh, he, in addition to, you know, uh, many other, you know, single kind of like novellas and, you know, pieces he did, one about like, you know, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the student uprisings during the civil rights movement and, 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 mm-hmm. and the, the, the bus occupations, um, doing comic books on those. And uh, in addition to all of that work he did, he had American Splendor, which was his main, you know, comic series. And uh, it was just a kind of day-to-day slice of life. Um, comic series about his life as a file clerk and he was like this strident unionist leftist guy and um, he never really got anywhere you know his comics never made him rich Um, he collaborated a lot with uh, oh the man behind Fritz the Cat I want to say Daniel Crow. I know that's no, correct. Oh yeah, Crumb, Crumb, Crumb. Yeah, 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 yeah. Daniel Crow's another like kind of similar um, comic artist to them but Crumb is um, they, they collaborated a bit and uh you know, Harvey went in his whole life kind of staying true to what he did and, you know, his art. And he never got rich. He never, like, exploded. Um, his big moments of fame were, you know, going on the David Letterman show and uh, mm-hmm. one notorious episode he was on. And he was uh, striking against NPC and, and uh, uh, GE for, you know, various reasons. But uh, he, he was a very influential um, figure because... You know, he approached an art form that was kind of, in most aspects, dominated with a very kind of fantastical, you know, greater, larger than life superheroisms. And uh, he chose to write it, you know, completely inward about himself and about his own struggles. And, you know, he was drawn in not always a favorable light. And, you know, it would focus on, you know, struggles in his marriage, struggles at his work. You know, he he got cancer. Um, There's a whole 
uh, anthology series about his struggle with cancer. Mm-hmm. And the film itself, American Splendor, I think isn't just a great, it, it, he approved the film. He was actually featured in the film mm-hmm. and he loves the film. Um, there's an interview that he did on Howard Stern. He was talking just tons of praise about the film. I think in addition to just being a good portrait of, of uh, a true American artist, it's one of the best biopics I've ever seen. Yeah, I'd definitely agree. Here's me, all grown up and going nowhere. I'm not doing as great as you think. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> My second wife divorced me. I work a dead-end job as a file clerk. So if you're the kind of person looking for some fantasy figure to save the day, guess what? You got the wrong movie. In the early 60s, I met this shy retiring cat from Philadelphia. Meet my buddy, Bob Crump. You should see his comics. I could write comic book stories that are different from anything that's being done. This is great stuff. Can I illustrate them? These are all about you? Yeah. You turn yourself into a comic hero. Ordinary life is pretty complex stuff. Ron, you're done good. You are living the American dream. I never felt more like a sellout hack in my life. The way that it incorporates the comic book panel style into its cinematography the way that it incorporates real life stories from the comics and you know things from harvey's life seamlessly the way that it breaks the fourth wall and it will cut to these interview segments with harvey where he's talking to uh, the actor that that that's portraying him paul giamatti it's it's such an interesting and personal look at, at at an artist's life and it's an artist that i don't think a lot of people were aware of before they'd seen the film and uh um, he, he's just a, a person that I've, I have so much respect for. I think he, he proves that, you know, sometimes the most talented worthwhile people, they'll never get anywhere, but sometimes that, you know, that legacy is, is what, you know, is so, so rewarding. So he's become kind of like a cult figure within comics. Yeah, a, lot, a, lot definitely. Of, a lot of, a lot of that popularity can probably be, can probably be attributed to, um, this film and this film, which wasn't like very popular when it came out, but, it, but it has kind of also gain like a lot of cult respect and a lot of um respect from film fans and film critics and, and you mentioned how um you you really like films that portray people and again thinking about that it's that's that's a goal that i think the vast majority of films have but so few do it like really well like, yeah, it, like american splendor does yeah it's because you know and i can just attest this from taking you know bca classes here it's because if you watch a lot of you know films especially like the most modern most successful films you're watching less portrayals of real people and more you know portrayals of caricatures that they have you know targeted down that they know will progress the story in a way that'll make it appealing to you know the greatest number of people Mm -hmm. and that can be done in a good way there are films that can give you a very formulaic uh uh film and it can still be engrossing it can still be engaging and it can still be you know uh uh unique film just you you don't see very much of it mm-hmm. yeah. so yeah sadly you know it's it's a it's a entire art form kind of dedicated to observing human life and you see so very little authentic human life in in film i think that's that's one of my greatest complaints with it we're seeing mm-hmm. more of it i think with some films like you know eighth grade yeah. um uh, i think mid 90s is probably going to fall into that category the mm-hmm. new jonah hill film which I I really want to see it because now I have kind of mixed feelings about it. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if it's going to be good or just kind of like fodder, but uh, um, I I think that more 
people are getting more kind of craven for that kind of authenticity. Mm-hmm. So kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum is going to be my first pick for recommendations today is a recent film called Mandy. So what you going to do with that thing? I'm going hunting. So what you hunting? It's crazy evil. so in love i'll show you love starring oh okay nicholas cage um directed by um panos cosmatos the uh director who did i think his directorial debut was his previous film um beyond the black rainbow which is more of a tribute to like trippy kind of psychedelic uh sci-fi movies from like the 70s and 80s and you can see that influence definitely within Mandy. Kind of like a overview of the plot. It's Nicolas Cage fights Satanists. That that's cool. Yeah, that's great. Right. <laughs> but yeah, what well, um, I kind of mentioned. I, I I like films that are are unique within like uh, an outside of like a genre like standpoint, and so. The the first probably like hour of this film is very um it's very it's a, a lot of, and I watched this with uh, two uh, four old roommates of mine, um, um and like it's very uh, it's kind of being marketed as like this new midnight like slasher like cult movie. The first hour is very like slow and a lot of people call it like, it's almost like art movie esque. Yeah, and then um about the midway point, Nicolas Cage just go goes full on goes cage, full cage yeah. goes full cage and it's in kind of like opposition to what uh most people kind of assume um are the kind of like Nicolas Cage movies that um he he's starred in for like so long the past decade or so it's it's a it's very competently directed yeah the cinematography is great like there's it's hard to talk about this film like give give a very um like and then and this is this is a movie piece. that you think like defines you as a film viewer. Yes. Why? Like well, like well, I, I I'm I'm just really curious because this is like it's such a new movie like mm-hmm. this just came out, and it's Nicolas Cage and it's not Vampire's Kiss, <laughs> you know because that that's mm-hmm. that's his best film I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, I'd say it's one of the best movies I've seen so far this year. Wow. Um, okay. and and because of just like this um Cosmos like mastery of like the t- the tone of. Um, simultaneously being like this very dark, um, um, at times very disturbing story, while also with Nick Cage as its lead, succeeds at being like very entertaining in, in, a, in a very, um, very, very interesting way. Hmm. Uh, on a scale of like, I don't know, National Treasure to L. Oh, um, uh, it, it's, it's bad the, lieutenant. It's, it, yeah, bad yeah. Lieutenant. On, on a scale of like that to bad lieutenant, it's more towards bad lieutenant, I'd say. Hell yeah. <laughs> Is it more like Bad Lieutenant or Wild at Heart? Because um, those are two case, very distinct cages. In that case, I think it's two more Wild at Heart. All right, good, because that's one of my favorite cages. <laughs> one of my favorite Lynch films, Fight Me, it's better than Mulholland Drive. Mm. It is. <laughs> Mulholland Drive sucks. It's so dumb. I have hot takes tonight. To kind of keep it moving... Uh, my 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 next film, which is definitely this this is one of my favorite films of all time. I use any opportunity I can on the show to like drop in, you know, 
uh, clips, audio blurbs, whatever I can of this film. Buffalo 66. I have a poster mm-hmm. of it in my office right over there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I can't describe this film as anything other than just like a, a, a true classic. And it's, it's not that it's like a very symbolic, very surrealist art piece. Cause it's not, I think it's, I think it's like what I said earlier, you can have a film that follows kind of like basic formulas and you can do it really well. Mm-hmm. Cause this film is very much so like, you know, Vincent Gallo's character in, in the film, he's very much an archetypical, uh, uh, you know, male figure. Christina Ricci is very much like a damsel in distress who comes to, you know, get like kind of Stockholm syndrome sort of. And there's all these kind of romantic kind of nods to old Hollywood mm-hmm. and these nods to, you know, old kind of 19 or these kind of like old, like neo-noir um, characteristics. Mm-hmm. And in in the weirdest way, it's kind of like how Seinfeld you, did you watch Seinfeld very much? I've caught episodes every here, like here and there. Anyone who who's watched Seinfeld, you know, uh, a lot of it in bulk. There's a lot of like neo noir kind of homages within Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's certain episodes, like one one specifically is the the library episode where Jerry forgets to return uh, Tropic of Cancer to the library, and the library like cop you know comes <laughs> to his to his apartment and. The, the way that he speaks, he speaks on all these like, you know, you got another thing coming, buddy. Like he speaks like a neo-noir, like bad guy gangster. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like romantic nod to that time that's, you know, in the 90s. Like you're mm-hmm. looking back on that, you know, Buffalo 66 came out in 1998. Yeah, 1998. It captures a lot of that spirit. That's just a filmmaking style and uh, um, aesthetic choice I've always been drawn to. There's a lot of films... That, you know, and it could be, I guess, like kind of like problematic because like I, I can have very kind of like romantic traditionalist tastes in, in cinema sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just because I I like people putting old Hollywood in like the best vacuum it can be while also kind of being aware of what's going on in the universe. Because the film itself, Buffalo 66, tells the story of uh, this guy um, who gets you know released from prison and he essentially kidnaps this girl because he goes, you know, he goes to find a bathroom and then, you know, he kidnaps this girl and he tells her, you know, I'm not going to kill you or anything, but I need you to pretend to be my girlfriend so we can impress my parents. I need to go see my parents and tell them I'm doing really well. They don't know I've been in prison and I don't want to ruin the film for you, but you can also see, you can already see why this is like a problematic, like romantic comedy uh-huh. in that like <laughs> this guy is like, kidnapping a woman and like kind of threatening her and you know x y and z but um they end up falling in love which <laughs> is a, again someone is clearly going to find an issue with that but the way that the story is handled the way that the der- with that the characters are written um the editing the soundtrack uh uh the cinematography which which Vincent Gallo he wrote directed produced and starred in the film mm-hmm. um he did everything short of catering for for the film. And uh, I, I think he hit it out of the park in every single aspect. I think that, you know, looking back on it 20 years in, 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 in retrospect, it's one of the best films in the 90s. I think it's one of one of my favorite films, probably number two okay. for me. And it has just everything that I love about a good, just traditional fun story because it's funny. It's it's it has a brain to it. And it's this kind of revenge crime story 
that isn't so removed from the real world and reality that I feel like I'm watching, you know, something on the USA network, uh-huh. you know, so, but Buffalo 66, I can't say it enough. Vincent Gallo, um, for all of his, you know, personal struggles, I, I have tremendous respect for him. I wish he would come back and just do another film. Um, yeah. Buffalo 66. We're taking pictures from my parents. Do you understand that? Mm-hmm. We're taking pictures like we're a couple, like we like each other, like we're, we're husband and wife, and we span time together. We span time together as a couple, because we're a loving couple spanning time. These photos are us in love spanning time. No bullshit faces, no funny faces. Just look like you like me. That's all I want. Just look like you like me. That's it. Can you do that? I don't want to waste more money. Just do it right, all right? We're in love. We're spanning time. Look like you like me. Look like we're husband and wife. Okay? I do like you, Billy. Okay, you know what I mean. I mean like you like me like you're my wife, like you're in love, that kind of like. Like we're in love spanning time. The idea okay? of taking Just kind of like right. this old right? the old Hollywood values and old Hollywood kind of like story structure and mindset behind filmmaking um, putting it in like a modern context is I think a very interesting one. Yeah, and he kind of did that in The Brown Bunny 2, but instead of kind of having an homage to like this uh 19 you know 40s kind of you know neo noir way of speaking which if you listen to Vincent Gallo speak in like an interview he kind of just talks that way he's you know he's from Buffalo he's from New York uh-huh. he sounds like a guy who's from New York you know he kind of <laughs> has that like swagger to him and uh um but yeah in in Brown Bunny he kind of did that too but instead of like that whole neo noir thing it was more of like a 19 I don't know kind of like early 70s pastiche to it because it's more of a road movie uh-huh. um there's there's more kind of like tonal leniencies to like looking back on like the the 70s that era of hollywood okay which, uh, there's also like i think some weird homages like the golden age of porn in the movie uh-huh. but i could probably write a essay about that for a class and get i think a no, knowing a bit about vincent gallo that's not exactly surprising yeah watching the ending of the brown bunny that's not very surprising <laughs> but uh yeah we probably can't get into that on the podcast no. but um uh, yeah so uh what what's what's your next my, and actually like to that conversation is like a pretty perfect segue to my next <laughs> film um the movie brick by ryan johnson i'm um, starring joseph gordon levy it was uh 2005 film, film, I believe. You're coming into a certain situation. It's twisted. I'm looking for Emily. You left her? Yeah, I did. You better be sure you want to know what you want to know. So longtime fans of Mitchell Kakalka on this podcast are probably aware that I think pretty highly of The Last Jedi. Um, and, I, and I was really anticipating The Last Jedi. Like, even before it came out, I kind of had an expectation that this is going to be like one of my favorite Star Wars movies specifically um, because I have so much respect for Ryan Johnson as a filmmaker. And this was one of his first, I think this might have been um, may, maybe his like first like big film, his first kind of, if not his directorial debut, this was his first kind of like main, his, the closest. First one with like a budget behind the, it. Behind a budget behind it. Um, the clo- the clo- for closest he came at that point to having like a hit film. And so what Brick is, it's, an old it's it's kind of an old hollywood gumshoe detective story told in what what was at the time kind of like a my modern high school setting it's just Gordon levitt's character plays this um kind of like nose to um ear nose to ground, ear to the ground um 
kind of loner character, reminiscent of um, the like hard boiled, noirish detective. Um, kind of like pulp, pulp, pulp character. Yeah, yeah, a pulp character. And there's, um, you can see those kind of old Hollywood, old noir like archetypes pop out throughout the film only in the context of this, um, on the context of a high school. Like the kind of like the femme fatale character is this very like overconfident and kind of like dramatic young woman who's the head of like the drama team there there at the at the high school and when when uh, in interviews when people have asked him like what Warren Johnson like what's the inspiration behind this and what he wanted to see um in this what he wanted to put out there in, in this movie that like he didn't really see in other high what is uh, or when people his age, um, lots of people who, you know, like make movies like 30, 40 year olds, when they make films about teenagers like y- and younger people, it's always like very removed and I don't know, I don't know exactly what would be like. Out right, of touch. Out of touch, but also kind of trivial, like they trivialize a lot of the problems like. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and so basically, what he said, like he wants the reason why it's like a, it's like a very like straight, like played straight, like dark, like detective story, just in high school setting. As a, he wanted to portray that, like for, for high schoolers, like the problems that they deal with in, within their personal lives are like dead serious. They do seem kind of like murder mysteries. They do seem kind of yeah. like very, very like dramatic and sometimes like traumatizing things. Um, and and that's something that's not that films don't really like touch on. Like it's always when you look at teen movies, it's always kind of like, oh, who's going to the prom? Blah blah blah. And it's and, like Fast Times, uh, Rich yeah. on High, which mm-hmm. like uh, that whole era of teen movies is looked is looked on with like a really weird kind of nostalgia because mm-hmm. like like you know like uh, uh revenge of the nerds fast times at ridgemont high days and confused animal house days yeah. and confused well maybe not days and confused so much kind of yeah mm-hmm. the all of those films are remembered in like this very like very like basic like oh yeah this is how like life was for these kids and like it was very happy-go-lucky like there were abortions in those movies mm-hmm. there were like like especially like Pretty in Pink, uh, you know, there in like a lot of uh, John Hughes films, I always like that he would kind of look look at like the personal struggles of students. You know, mm-hmm. it kind of reminds me of what you're you're describing with Brick. But mm-hmm. people look back on those films so kind. Like I I remember that being brought up with uh, with like uh this, this whole this whole Kavanaugh thing. Like like this whole like oh it was kind of like a, a Fast Times at Ridgemont High scenario. Like just mm-hmm. I'm like. It's funny how we look back on some things, you know? Yeah. But yeah. And kind of going back to like, um, like what I was talking about in the beginning, I, I, I really like films that don't really fall into like specific genres. And yeah, when you like hear people talk about like the setup, like the, the concept of this movie, it's old style, a gumshoe detective story in a high school. It's like, oh, that's funny. And there are, there are a lot of, um, there, there are a lot of funny moments and a lot of moments that kind of play on the irony of that setup. Like there's kind of like dramatic, like a dramatic meeting where in older movies you would see like the two, like the antagonist and the protagonist, like meeting in the bar, like the shady kind of like s- smoky bar room setting. There's something like that in this film only they're meeting in the bad, the bad guy and doing air quotes kitchen and like his mom's serving them like orange juice and like, and, like, um, interrupting him, him occasionally. Um, and so there's moments like that, but there's also um, 
moments that deal with um like drug abuse um within um like the kind the kind of like american high school students lives um that's portraying and so yeah taking this old uh structure and idea of uh genre of movies and putting it in a modern context is um kind of like um you were talking about with buffalo 66 i haven't seen brick so i can't really add much but i i do want to see it because uh I want to see if Ryan Johnson has always hated men as I want to go back to his back catalog and see if like that <laughs> hatred has been consistent in his, in his filmmaking style. So it could be interesting, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll put it on the back burner. Mm-hmm. Um, my next pick, uh, it's kind of a blanket pick, which I kind of acknowledge is kind of ignorant of me to do, but uh, <clears throat> I wanted to mention Chungking Express, 1994 okay. Hong Kong film. And I, I want to bring up this film because, you know, we're talking about who we are as fans. The thing that I look at the most and I critique this the most is cinematography. Uh-huh. So I want to use Chungking Express as like a starting off point for great cinematography in foreign cinema. So just like non-American cinema. Uh-huh. So Chungking Express, uh, you know, Taste of Cherry, Close Up, you know to uh, uh, Abbas Karastami films. You know, I'm, I'm a huge Ozu fan. Uh-huh. So I really want to bring attention to those filmmakers you know, under the guise of Chungking Express and just implore you to just seek out foreign cinema. If nothing else, you know, I understand that there's subtitles and I understand that you can watch Attack on Titan, but you can't watch a foreign film for whatever reason. But, um... I implore you, seek out foreign cinema. Not all of it's good. There's a lot of crap, a uh-huh. whole lot of crap, just like any any other market. But uh, the thing that I think is always so like rewarding to me about foreign cinema is, one, its pace is usually so much better, and two, its cinematography is nine times out of ten just an entire league above American cinematography at the time. Uh-huh. So Chunking Express is, I think, one of the more probably one of the most beautiful, beautifully shot films I've ever okay. seen. Kind of continues a, a, you know, theme for me, which is that, you know, I like simple stories. You know, my, my girlfriend was actually telling me this the other day because I was like walking by her and she was watching some anime and I, I, I don't know what the anime was. She's always watching anime. <laughs> and uh, it was like some slice of life anime because that's a whole genre in anime and I, I was I just asked her like oh you know what 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 is that and she told me the name of the show and I don't remember and uh, I just told her like oh yeah it kind of looked interesting and she said well yeah you all usually like simple stuff you know th- th- things that just like observe simple life like that that's that's kind of true I like things that kind of observe everyday mundanity okay I I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the film being more observational than it is informal but uh, um, Chunking Express and you know all those films I mentioned before, uh, I'm just going to mention them under the guise of fantastic cin- cinematography. So uh, I implore you, just go look up, you know, Ozu, Karastami, Wong Kar Wai. So uh, that 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 would be uh, my my pick. I find his work very charging. When I saw uh, Chunking Express was when I was with Pulp Fiction. I was at a festival at, uh, in Stockholm. And I had seen a film of Wong Kar Wai's before called Days of Being Wild that I always really loved. And I heard he had a new movie coming out, so I was interested in seeing it. Well, that's where I saw it. And, oh, it just blew me away. I just absolutely adored it. I loved it. It's, 
I love uh, romantic films, and this film has just like this wonderful, uh, this, this wonderful romantic comedy flavor to it, while at the same time being encapsulized in this crazy, frenetic uh, Hong Kong world, which as wild as the Hong Kong movies are when you see them in America, if you actually see them in Hong Kong, they don't seem so wild because that's kind of what life is on the streets there. It kind of has that pace. It's very strange. Anyway. So you mentioned that in, at least in your view, like these foreign movies tend to have like a more sophisticated like um, filming style, or if not sophisticated, like you, you said, like better like cinematography. Well, I, I think the whole sophistication thing, it depends on who you talk to. Because my opinion of like quote unquote sophisticated cinematography, I mean, I would throw like Yorgos Lanthimos, the Greek director, mm-hmm. the guy behind uh, the Lobster and Dogtooth uh, and Dogtooth, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Because the way that he shoots his films is he does this style of filmmaking where he basically keeps the camera steady the entire film, which Mm -hmm. I like directors that do that, like Ozu. Ozu had a steady camera for most of his films, and he had a lot of reasons for doing that. But Lanthimos and directors like him who do that, it's a trend that I think like can work. I I feel like, you know, uh, uh, Dogtooth, The Lobster, I haven't seen Killing of a Sacred Deer yet. I think those are beautifully shot films. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the stillness can get a, a bit redundant. And sometimes I, I wish that the camera was a bit more free flowing or moving at certain mm-hmm. points in those films. Cause sometimes the steady camera, you, you get a little bit st- sick of looking at a still image, which mm-hmm. will get a little bit funny with a, an upcoming pick that I, I wanted to mention later. <laughs> Cause it's kind of makes me a hypocrite, but uh, um, yeah. So that's what I think of when I think of like sophisticated film okay. filmmaking that kind of like very um like rigid kind of following a, a distinct style throughout that's more of like a highbrow like okay. um yeah yeah I, I i would call that that kind of you know still camera no camera movement like lanthimos look mm-hmm. you know sophisticated quote unquote why, why would you um think that like this this that title style of like filmmaking isn't as isn't as common in like a mainstream like american cinema uh, there's a lot of reasons for that i think that for one most audiences are most audiences are conditioned visually um to to expect cuts expect changes in movement expect changes in action uh at certain points in time mm-hmm. um there are studies that have looked at it that that have you know shown like human engagement via you know certain cuts in films there's some films that cut so much that the eye doesn't even have time to focus and like process the information like i'm sure that you've seen like a fight scene in a film mm-hmm. that is so overcut yeah and the camera is moving so much that it just looks like moving you know blurbs mm-hmm. and you're like i guess they're fighting but i don't really know yeah. what's going on the, the second taken movie like, i think was the <laughs> first movie that like really made me like it was one of the first movies like there's there's movies that like um make you realize like oh that's that's what that's what it looks like when something is done wrong in like filmmaking yeah, yeah. like that's that was the first movie that really was like oh this is how you should not fight this is how you should not film a fight scene is that doing exactly what you just described uh dark knight rises batman mm-hmm. versus bane in that on that oh, yeah. like uh that like little narrow path mm-hmm. horrible fight scene but uh, <laughs> that would be an example of you're cutting so quickly, and I I just notice this in a lot of films. It it's just a a trend to cut quickly, and most audiences 
you know, they're, they're going to go see the most popular films, which will have a tendency to cut more rigidly and more quickly. And the shots themselves are going to be, they're going to take less time. So when you see a long shot, it throws you off like that. That's why a film like uh, funny games, there's that scene where she's just sitting there mortified that she's just, you know, seeing this murder take place. And, you know, to, to, to the film, like up to that point, uh, the pacing was like pretty steady. And then you get this like minute long hold. Mm -hmm. And the first time I watched that film, it kind of like, I was like, wow, like good on you for holding this long. Like, Mm -hmm. it's like, I, I, I love what you're trying to do there. A lot of audiences, they'd be like, all right, like we get it. Yeah. Move on. And I, anytime I'm in a theater and it's like quiet and like, there's just a long hold and someone's just like, I'm like, you piece of crap. You're, you're, you are such a cause of my misery. I am having flashbacks to when I saw a ghost story, the um, David Lowry film from last year. Oh God. How was that? I, because I, I, I'm not gonna lie. When I saw that in the theaters, I started laughing. Like I saw, <laughs> I saw the trailer. I started laughing. I was like, it looks like a goddamn like Starbucks ad. <laughs> like I, I don't know. I wasn't it's, into it. I, 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 I like to watch it again. I definitely, it's one of those movies. I definitely gonna have to like watch again. But it's entirely like um a very like slow and monotonous movie. Yeah, and in, including one like very famous scene like it's it's one scene that like a lot of people talked about just how like odd it was where and um for those who don't know the setup is husband character played by casey affleck dies pretty early in the movie and and he becomes a ghost like an old-fashioned like sheet ghost just like blanket with eye eye holes very quirky yes it's quirkiness played in kind of like a um in a like dramatic situation it's, it, it looks like a cold play music video that's a very good way to describe <laughs> it actually but and um th- um the the main character's wife played by rooney mara and this is the scene love rooney mara mm-hmm, and this is the scene um immediately after like she comes home from the mortuary to like identify his body and she comes home and she just like takes a pie out of the refrigerator well, no, she takes a pie that somebody had left for her because, like, people, somebody is like, oh, sorry, your husband died. And they just, like, le- left, a pie. Pie, left her yeah. a pie. Um, condolences. She just eats the pie. And it's like, it feels like it goes on for 30 minutes. It goes on for, like, five, four or five minutes, just, like, one shot. Her, like, eating the pie, then, like, kind of, like, sinking down, like, slumping, like, into, like, down, down on the floor. And um, some, something that you could realistically imagine somebody who's, like, going through, like, a, gr- a grief like such as this, like this is moving like, in slow motion kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. And yeah, like I, I saw it in a crowded theater in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And like saying, saying this, um, there's always kind of a risk of saying this, you sound pretentious, but I feel like I was the only mo- person who went into that movie kind of knowing what it was. I feel like everybody else in that, a lot, a lot of people in that audience probably just saw it. Cause like, Oh, it's a ghost story. I like Casey Affleck. And then really now it was going to be kind of a more, um, slow pace methodical um rumination type of movie Mm -hmm. and so like that scene was like one that people i think like people were like really starting to like shuffle in their seats and like sighing like like like, what the hell is i like that good (laughs) it's it's good that people get that way but let me be clear just because a film is shot that way doesn't make it good yeah and there are so many there are so many times where i will watch a movie like okay perfect example upstream color Mm mm-hmm um, that Shane Carruth movie, yep. the guy that did Primer. Primer's really good. 
upstream color is one of the biggest pieces of crap <laughs> I've ever seen. It is it is such a pretentious like student student film. It is a student film that the it looks like a Gatorade commercial. It looks like a glorified like hundred minute Gatorade commercial <laughs> with all of these long shots that just lead to nothing and this like overly symbolic surrealist like n- natural supernatural crap. It's like every cliche. Like a, a director who stars in his own movie, making mm-hmm. an independent movie that's mm-hmm. like deep. Every yeah. stereotype about that is that movie. It's upstream color. Yeah, that's why I think when I think of Gatorade commercial, it is like long, methodical. <laughs> <laughs> no, like there, there's this scene. It's like the opening scene. There are these kids like walking down the the the, the street and. The, the kid like drinks a water bottle and the way that the sun is like reflecting against his skin yeah. and there's like a narration going over it. I'm like, this is a Gatorade commercial. It looks just like it's a Gatorade commercial. And yeah, I, can see, I, I, I can see how Shane Ruth would be kind of more like a film student-y type of director. I mean, Primer was shot on what, like th- a $3 budget? Yeah, like, uh, and I think that Primer's a good movie, but man, seeing seeing people like pour out their hearts for art for a uh, upstream color it proved to me you can just trick people if you film a, uh if you shoot a film in a in a specific way you will trick them into thinking that it's a better film than it actually is and i think that's mm-hmm. a perfect example because he does what directors like you know lanthimos do just without any of the actual like backbone okay. of it it's just mm-hmm. here's a bunch of long shots and characters being conflicted with this like psycho babble i attach to it and it's not that the film is like incomprehensible or i think that you know oh movies need to make more sense blah blah, blah. it's just a bad movie it's just bad oh man <laughs> and that, kind of, that kind i've just of... been building all of this stress for a month <laughs> and it's it's just pouring out that would yeah. actually be a great transition into uh safe okay yeah the another, todd haynes film yeah another film that we talked very about slow Mm-hmm. very methodical but i think it does it in a, a correct way it mm-hmm. films in a very kind of sanitized clean sterile way mm-hmm. to reflect how the character wants to live a life of sterilization of purity of you know this kind of removal yeah. from human interaction because safe it's a 1995 film about this uh woman who, you know, is like a very, very rich, very kind of wealthy Was- waspy kind wasp of like mom. Yeah, for sure. She basically develops this uh, uh, obsessive illness and paranoia with mm-hmm. germs and, and the outside world. Uh, Environmental. Yeah, yeah. This kind it? of like it, this 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 belief that the environment itself is killing her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she goes through these kind of like ritualistic kind of breakdowns at, at times because she feels like her, you know, her health is falling apart. Like what's the, what's the term for people that self-diagnose far, for far too much? It's a hypochondriac. Yeah. 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 It? It's kind of like, like, you know, being a hypochondriac, but to like a logical extreme mm-hmm. because the way that the film ends, is like, she has to essentially leave her family and yeah. leave her surroundings to join this like very strange cult that kind of preaches this, this new age uh, philosophy that, you know, the government's poisoning the air and, you know, that the, the, the industrialized world is poisoning the you know mother earth. And it's like very, it's like out of the pocketbook of like earth first and those, mm-hmm. those types of groups, which 
shout out Earth first. But uh, it, no, it, it's very uh, weird. And she goes to this strange cult to basically live in exile away from germs. And the film just ends with her going to exile. Yeah. And I, I want to give a shout out. Um, You and I are YouTube fans. We like YouTube. Yeah. Are you familiar with Cuck Philosophy, the, 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 the YouTube channel? I'm not. I'm surprised. This is the first time I've heard about it, uh, a title like that. Fantastic channel. Oh, like, I'm like, sure. uh, no, 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 no. Like, completely unironically, a very, very good channel. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did this episode not too long ago about um, New Age music in the 90s and, okay. and kind of like neoliberalism attached to it. Mm-hmm. And they they talked about how, like, there was this idea in like 90s new age music to kind of like return to the old world or return to purity. Mm -hmm. Like they talk about that, that enigma song return to innocence (laughs) and there's all these themes. But the irony is that those record labels, those companies were taking, you know, uh, world music, quote unquote, you know, world music, you know, these kind of like folk songs, these traditional songs from these, you know, other countries that they would sample in this new age music and they wouldn't credit those original musicians so okay. and they so they were preaching about this kind of like return to innocence, return to purity while basically exploiting the culture of those people by stealing it without crediting them or paying them or, mm. you know, doing anything. It was just taking it, putting it in, in like an, an enigma song or something and then just moving on, which my dad listened to so much enigma growing up. <laughs> oh, my God. Bring up bad memories. But that that ties in perfectly to safe because, you know, in, in the film, uh, when she goes away to that cult. It's like this organization of these wealthy white people who have essentially set up shop to exploit this paranoia, this paranoia that that exists, like rejecting the modern industrialized world. And you have this idea that that you need to return to a pure naturalism, but you're being duped, you know, like you're being Uh duped because you're still partaking in that that system that you're trying to, you know, turn away from. And by her getting like basically put into like this 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 capsule ran by these like weird trust fund kids who started this <laughs> cult, it's like the ultimate irony, you know. So I, I thought that was really, really interesting. Uh so shout out to Cuck Philosophy and that <laughs> video. Um, fantastic video, and it, it made me think of safe. So uh Okay. And I, I love safe. Um the reason why it's so kind of important to me as a viewer is one, Todd Haynes yeah. is an, an an amazing director. And two, um, some of the best cinematography I have seen in any film. Mm. And it does uh, what, you know, people like like Lanthimos did that very kind of like still camera style. Most of the shots within safe are just still cameras observing like, you know, a, a house or a room or something. The camera barely moves the whole film. But the shot composition is just like like you could pause the film at any time. And just it's a beautiful photograph. Yeah. I, I love those kinds of films. Mm-hmm. Mommy. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm not going to watch well, right. Carol? You all right? Yeah, thank you. Carol. What's going on? I don't know. Carol? Oh, my God. Linda, what happened? She can't breathe. Caroline, call her house. Someone should call her doctor. And Jennifer, could you get some water, please? Just try to relax. And so cinematography, um, 
you, you mentioned how it does have this like sterile and uh, does that lends itself to that mindset of the character and also it kind of like builds for the viewer it kind of builds up kind of this like the character is feeling this like uneasiness yeah like when, when shot shots last like too long and like without a whole lot of movement it, it does for a viewer from the viewer perspective it does kind of like build up this kind of like paranoia of like and like uneasy feeling which is exactly what the character main character starts to go through towards the end of the movie yeah so uh did you have another yeah i did and um in that long conversation we just had there, there was a couple like pretty good segues um um, one you were talking about, um, cause the film I'm going to mention is, is kind of like a simple story, uh, is I'm going to mention, I'm going to compare it and contrast it to the taken movies and, okay. um, so it is a recent one, um, came out within the last year. It's, uh, you were never really here by Lynn Ramsey, um, starring Joaquin Phoenix and, um, one of my favorite film critics, uh, David Eyerlich, who I, I, I've probably mentioned so many times in that exact same context on this podcast, um, he described it like perfectly. It's, it's kind, of, it's basically just art house taken. It's, it's a pretty, it's a, again, it's, it's a very simple setup. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays this war veteran um, who base, basically now just lives as. Um, I don't know if it would be accurate to call him like a hitman, basically somebody who does like dirty work, like the kind of work that somebody who's like gone through. He's a gangster, essentially. To a degree. He's, he's, he's a very like lone wolf style, like individual operator who specifically, he specifically, he goes after um, people involved with child trafficking. He, Mm. he's the kind of person that people know that they can call, um, like if a, ch- a child of theirs is kidnapped or like goes missing, um, they're the, he's the kind of person that people can call and they know that he's going to get them back and he's going to very much like hurt the people who did it. And so there's a, there is kind of like that cathartic, um, that cathartic factor of uh, the, the all the bad guys in this movie are child predators, not child traffickers. So it's, it's, it's not really... The the more the what other the actions that the main character takes, which would otherwise be like morally ambiguous, eh, not, not as much. They're kind of like Nazis or like zombies, child traffickers, not not really the most sympathetic. But so what we're we talking about, um, the art house taken this simple setup of like trying and specifically the within like the plot of the film, it's um a, a wealthy politician, um. His daughter's kidnapping contacts walking things to like get her back, and so very like taken esque um, setup. And really, but really, like what makes this film stand out is Lynn Ramsey's direction. Um, we talked about her a little bit with um, we need to talk about Kevin, which was the film she made before this yeah, a couple great of years film. ago. And so, yeah, and kind of where the art house nature of it comes in is you have this simple setup, and so what she does with the rest of the movie is and a lot of, a lot of times it feels very like fly on the wall, like slice of lifetime kind of um, movie when a lot of it's just dealing with like the day to day life of somebody, of somebody who um like walking Phoenix's character would go through. I mean, he, he lives with his mother in kind of like a crappy apartment. And so there's a lot of kind of like 
kind of like more like human, like humanizing moments between him interacting with her. But there's always like this undercurrent of like the trauma that he's going through mm. and like the, the, the own like paranoia and like anxiety, anxiety that he carries with him. And then it's, um, which is, um, in juxtaposition to like the very brutal, um, portrayals of like vi- of violence that, um, comes when he's actually doing his job. And so, um, like we're saying kind of like a simple, it's like we've, like a couple of films we've been like talking about today, um, simple setup, but done in a very unique way in a, in a way that kind of like breathes li- like a new uh, life and like a new vision into this type of film. Um, I think that would kind of segue mm-hmm. into we're doing well with like the segues. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't even like rehearse this. Um, that, that kind of like fly in the wall observance, and sometimes like looking at like kind of like more harsh elements of life. Uh, Heaven knows what it's a film I've mm-hmm. talked about a lot on the show. I'm not going to talk more about it because there's really not much I could add that I okay. haven't already said. But um, I rewatched the film probably two months ago because I, I, I like to periodically like rewatch films that I know I love just to see mm-hmm. if like I, I still like them a lot and uh, still love it. I think it's still very underrated film um yms thought the cinematography was ugly which i have issue with but uh no no, no. i i love heaven knows what the safety brothers they did a good time from yep. last year um i think they're some of the the best directors working right now uh i'm really excited that they're coming up i think that they're going to be like a new um people within a new wave uh-huh. for sure and I mean, they're doing a movie with Adam Sandler next. So are they really? Yeah, ne- the next film like it's going to be an Adam Sandler if, if movie. If they if they make him good, like 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 like, like in like Punch Drunk Love or Paul something. Thomas Anderson. Yeah, did, if they yeah. pull a Paul Thomas Anderson and make him like, because all right, I oh man, I didn't <laughs> want to talk about Adam Sandler today, but we're going to very briefly. I remember in like two thousand, this had to have been two thousand eight, when Funny People came out. Uh-huh. Me and like two of my best friends snuck in to go see it yeah at, at like the mo- the local movie theater and uh i remember we all walked away from that film feeling like we were like changed forever because <laughs> it was like wow seth rogan's in a movie but it's like kind of funny and it's like kind of serious and we were like 14 and we were just like we thought we watched like this life-changing like coming of age movie mm-hmm. and it's funny people <laughs> like it's Oh man! I, yeah, I remember that was that was the first time in like a while that like people were saying like, "Oh, Adam Sandler is still an actor." I, I, I like what's so funny about that film is like it it like rips apart Adam Sandler's entire career, mm-hmm. kind of like tongue in cheekly to his face. But then, and like I remember watching the film in the theaters, me like, "Wow, they're really like making fun of Adam Sandler making bad movies," because that's like mm-hmm. a recurring gag in the movie. And then. I was like, maybe he's learned his lesson after he makes this. Maybe like, and then uh, yeah. he never did. Now he had like the Netflix twenty yeah. movie yes. special. Yeah, and, and that was—I mean, that was that was what Paul Thomas Anderson did with Punch Drunk Love to a degree. Like he he based that entire character on like the Adam Sandler persona that he had carried through all of his yeah. movies up until that point, like the Happy Madison, the Happy Gilmore. Happy Madison, Billy Madison, isn't it? No, no, it, it's Happy Madison. That that's the name of the company that that he has. Yeah, yeah. um, 
the Happy Madison Productions, like um, Happy Gilmore and, Bill, and Billy Madison, Billy yeah. Madison, and that man child, like easily, like that rage, rage, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. that's and what um, PTA did with Punch Drunk Love was see like, oh, this is this is how this person would live in like real life if 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 he was in like an actual like society instead of an M Sandler movie. I showed that to Courtney. Mm-hmm. Uh, Courtney's my girlfriend for you know, anyone who doesn't know, but I uh, showed it to her and uh, the scenes where like he was running around his office. She was like getting anxious <laughs> and she said, I don't like this movie. Like, uh-huh. like when, when she, when he went to Hawaii to yeah. find the girl, I was just like, so what do you think? She's like, I don't like this. And I'm uh-huh. like, damn it. But I get it. So um, to wrap things up, I only have a couple more films I want to talk about. And two of them kind of go together. Uh, mm-hmm. Todd Salons happiness. And uh, Rick Alverson's The Comedy. Okay. Um, I've talked about The Comedy a lot. It's mm-hmm. like my favorite movie of all time. Um, maybe I'll do a in-depth analysis of it one day, like a solo one. Maybe yeah. that'll be an upcoming episode where I really like take it to task. Because mm-hmm. I, I really, really love that film. And I feel like there's so much about it that goes overlooked because it's a movie with Tim Heidecker in it. But uh, The Comedy is one of my favorite films. And I... The reason why it's one of my favorite films is because everything I like the, 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 the cinematography is beautiful. The character study is beautiful. The writing is is witty. It's funny. It's on point. Uh, Tim Heidecker's acting is impeccable because he 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 may not be deviating too far from what he normally does, but he's playing the character that he's trying to portray so well. Uh-huh. And I, I couldn't picture anyone else doing that character in that film, trying to convey the point that he's trying to make. Um, but I want to focus more on happiness, Todd Salons, which you've seen. I haven't yet. No, uh, I loaned it to you. Like, I know it's months it's, ago. Yeah, it's I'm, I'm going to watch it like any day now. Um, happiness is like the most uncomfortable comedy you're yeah. ever going to watch. Um, huh, should I like I, I yeah, spoil I'm, it. Yeah, all right, I'll spoil it. So, I already know like a lot of what happens. Um, so basically, happiness. It's this film about multiple people's lives who are kind of oddly connected through like familial and some like social ties. Uh-huh. Um, all, you know, kind of looking at their lives and you know whether or not they're seeking happiness. That's the most surface level level way to like dissect it. It's like oh, it's different people looking through happiness. Um, you have Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's like this pervert who will call up his very attractive neighbor and, you know, tell her that he will do things to her and then hang up and then, you know, do a lot of disgusting things, uh-huh. basically. Um, then you have a, um, a father character who's a closeted pedophile who ends up abusing basically his, his friends and uh, his son's friends and other children in the neighborhood which gets, uh, you know, which gets found out. Um, and you have uh, a few other different characters who just go through a series of, of kind of tumultuous basic life events. But the, the reason why I say it's an uncomfortable comedy is that it is a comedy and it tries uh-huh. to handle all of these things and all of these very depressing real world events in a very black, humorous fashion in a very kind of satirical manner uh uh todd salons we talked about him a few times on the show he also did wiener dog which uh-huh. i love wiener dog um i think uh todd salons is probably one of the most 
off-putting filmmakers uh-huh. working today. Um, his films are usually unanimously uh, dividing. Yeah. And uh, I think that the reason why that is is that he he doesn't shy away. And when I say that he doesn't shy away, I mean that when when you think that the film has like gone there, you're mm-hmm. and then it, it just keeps going and going and going and it keeps getting more kind of gratuitous and graphic and uncomfortable. I mean, there there's some truths in the film that are harsh. There's a there's a a woman who's who's attempting to be a writer who, you know, wishes that she went through, you know, physical and sexual abuse in her life just so she could write about it. You know, it's revealing a lot of these very sinister uh, things that, you know, you may only say to yourself. But when there's a camera in the room and it's kind of like this, this, uh, you know, omniscient receiver, you know, uh, it, it, it brings all that to to the surface. So happiness is it's it's a film that shaped me as a viewer because the first time I watched it, I immediately knew it was like a, a film that I would never forget. Um, it got me into Todd Salons's work and Todd Salons is to this day, one of my favorite directors. So, you know, I have to include it here as just a, a very big seismic film for me. Okay. Yeah. There's, I kind of have like two more, two more films. Well, two more points to make. And, um, and like, I guess there, those were both would have been a very good, um, kind of like segues. So I'm gonna go, um, my, my, my next pick isn't so much like a single film. Um, it's, the filmography up to this point of Ari Aster, um, the, he's, he's just directed this year his first feature film, Hereditary, mm. um, which a lot of people who've kind of um, been paying attention to like the the um, genre of horror movies have definitely heard of so far. It's it's like this. It's like previous years there's it follow follows and like the witch and like the yeah. This is like the been the biggest horror film of this year so far. I think of this year. Um, and I one, still haven't seen it yet. I'd, I'd recommend it definitely. Um, yeah, I want to see the it. Best horror movies I've seen in a long time, and, and so before he um, came this year, the, made uh, Hereditary. He was mostly known for a short film he did in uh, 2011 called The Strange Things About The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. It's a 20 minute movie. You can find you can find all of his short films on his Vimeo page, but. You you really reminded me um, about the movie when you were talking about like Todd Salons and his like style of um, both writing and directing and strange thing about the Johnsons you can you can find a lot of um, reaction videos to it on YouTube because it, it's it was a very much popularized for being a like goes there um, type of film where it's about um, it's about a uh, father who is sexually abused uh, by his son. Oh. And, oh, all right. And yeah, it's and that's that is kind of like the crux of um the film is that scenario, um how like horrific it is for um the main character, the father, and and like the rest of the family. And it ends the re, I mean like kind of like why Ari Aster is like becoming popular is is like he's like Todd Slons. He is a he's a director who's when he sees like um Opportunities to like look look at uh, like true truths um, that like most people like would be uncomfortable of talking about and like we said a couple times now but like going there in air quotes um, when it comes to what he portrays as films uh, he um, 
it's, it's he's definitely one of the more interesting and like more like active people like doing like that making that type of type of film um hereditary is very similar there there's a scene in hereditary which you'll know it when you see it everybody who's seen it is is it's very much like that scene that like the one that everybody's talking about um when they see the movie that's just like horrific yeah don't ruin it for me and i'm not gonna ruin i'm not gonna like ruin anything but like you know when you see it like i said like it's there's there's um a scene in the movie that that just like is one of the most I, for a lot of people i think like one of the more horrific things that's like been portrayed in a horror movie um uh recently and, and a lot of the reason why people have been having that reaction it's because it's it's not something you'd expect at all and when um hereditary as a film deals in addition to like the supernatural elements of like the horde telling, there's just as much of probably not more focus on just a realistic portrayal of the grief that the family is going through, that the family at the center of the film is going through, um, based on traumatic events that happened before, before and during the film, um, and and that's really where like the the horror of the film comes from is um, the, like the the horrors of like grief and what it does to people and what does like the family and like the relationships with between each other and with others a a film that for me would be like one of my go-to films about like that kind of like falling apart of like a family unit uh Mm. squid and the whale okay that Mm. noah bomback film uh you know my parents got divorced when i was a kid and that film's about like a family going through a divorce and like it felt so real when I watched that uh-huh. movie. I was just like, damn, that's that's sometimes how it would feel like being a kid and like between, you know, like your parents. So, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. It kind of, um, that, uh, what, what was the name of the short that he did? Uh, the strange thing about the Johnsons. Yeah. The way that you described it, it sound, it kind of reminded me of like, uh, um, in a glass cage. Have you ever seen that movie? So I haven't. No. Spanish movie about the, like a Holocaust survivor who takes revenge on a Nazi war criminal that mm. hurt him in the Holocaust. Um, not the greatest movie, definitely kind of like a, you know, B rate kind of like exploitation movie, but mm. worth a watch. Pretty, uh, angsty. Okay. For, as far as movies, movies go. But, uh, so for me, <clears throat> anyone who's listened to this show knows what I'm going to say. Uh, the whole filmography of Harmony Korean, I have to bring up, <laughs> I have to is. mention it. There it is. I'm not going to talk your ear off about why he's a genius, but the beach bum is coming out mm-hmm. next year. Yep. And there's a lot of people that are going to, that are like disappointed. And to those people, I don't care. Why are they disappointed? I don't know <laughs> because they're. Man, this doesn't look like a, I don't know, it looks like he phoned it in. It looks like he doesn't know what he's doing. It looks like this movie isn't going to make much sense. <laughs> Have you ever seen any of his movies? Like, God. Like, like how does this look less competent than Trash Humpers? Like, give me a break. But uh, I love Harmony Korine, and he's probably inspired me as a person that likes movies, as a person that attempts anything creative and artistic quote-unquote artistic in my life uh he's he's like a he's like a part of that overall in inspiration you know that that, uh-huh. that that you're never gonna fully shake i guess like you know uh yeah i i guess that would probably be like the least irritating way to put it i i'm okay. sure i could you know be more 
fanboyish, but <laughs> I try not to be. Well, we do have episodes of you of you. Being we do like have that, episodes so. where I'm a little fanboyish, which I I hope to God he's never stumbled across those because <laughs> uh, that would be horribly embarrassing. But you know, uh, I was thinking moments ago. Um, the film that I really want to leave it off with today is kind of, I guess, unexpected. A film that I guess would be like more unexpected in the conversation. Uh, I want to take it back to a film that was one of the first films that I ever remember watching, uh, Old Yeller. Okay. Did you ever watch Old Yeller growing up? I, I believe, I, I think I did. Um, fam, it, it, I'll, I'll remember, you know, basic movie about a, a family that gets the family dog and mm-hmm. they have all these great adventures with the family dog and then the dog bites somebody and has rabies and they got to kill the dog and it's like okay. really emotional mm-hmm. and uh i have so many memory memories of being a kid you know ages like four or five being my grandparents house and uh watching that on vhs with my grandma i probably watched that like 500 times mm-hmm. that movie just repeatedly and uh you know, I, I think that those those early on films, those films that you're very first exposed to, kind of like the first books that you're exposed to or the first things that you can like cognitively take information in, uh-huh. those are kind of influential. Yeah. And I, I remember being a little kid crying my eyes out when Old Yeller died, you uh-huh. know, and, uh, you know, my grandparents always being, you know, like they they, they never would decry me for showing emotion i guess uh-huh. so i guess in a weird way that was always kind of a way for me to be comfortable with showing emotion as a guy you know because okay. growing up you know a lot of like i i take it for granted but like i can attest like i had friends growing up and they'd say like you know i have i have a dad who like if i cry in front of him he'll like you know he'll tell me not to be a bitch or something uh-huh. and uh i never had that i never had a family that made me not you know, be emotional. Like if I had a cry about something, you know, sometimes you just need to, irregardless mm-hmm. of if you have a penis. And uh, I think going all the way back to, you know, being exposed to that with with my grandparents, that that kind of shaped me as a film viewer because I'm drawn to um, those, those stories that kind of gem- generate empathy in me, you know? Like okay. there's probably a reason why I gravitate so, so much to something like Dancer in the Dark because that's a mm-hmm. film that really requires you. And this is why some people kind of dislike the film is because it requires you sometimes to empathize so much with the main character that you may put some logic on hold. Yeah. And sometimes I, I, I tend to be a very kind of empathetic viewer, especially when I feel like what I'm seeing is very real. And if I f- see, or if I feel like I'm, you know, seeing pain that feels real, that that affects me just as much as I feel like if I was seeing real pain sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, if, if if it's done, you know, correctly enough. So uh shouts out grandma, shouts out to grandpa, uh, for wearing out that VHS of old yeller. Cause maybe I'd have worse taste in movies now. Or maybe I'd have better taste in movies, <laughs> depending on, on on who you are. When was the last time you saw it? Oh boy, it's been a hot minute. We we watched Old Yeller, Pollyanna, okay, The Yearling, and a bunch of like uh oh uh who was that little girl? Annie. Was in, yeah, Annie. Who was the actress? Uh, Shirley, uh, Shirley Temple. Temple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How how did I not know who Shirley Temple was for a second? My my my, my grandma has a lot. <laughs> Your like, face. Really, you're really like. Oh. <laughs> 
I know who Shirley Temple is. But uh, yeah, so, you know, being being shown that kind of media growing up, uh, those kind of like older, older ch- children's films, mm-hmm. I think that's a tradition I'll probably carry on with my kids. I'll probably okay. have my mm-hmm. kids watch Pollyanna. I'll probably have okay. my kids watch Old Yeller just because mm-hmm. it's those are experiences I kind of want to give to my kids if I can, because I think those okay. are like some of the most like positive experiences that I can remember being a kid is like watching those with a parent. So, yeah. Yeah. I think like the only movie I had back then was that I would watch like every second I could was Rugrats in Paris, which. Oh, did you have the orange tape? Yes, I did. Me too. Oh my God. God. I still have it somewhere, but, but yeah, I mean, like you said, like that really shaped you as a film goer. I think people knowing that like I based my entire personality around Rugrats in Paris when I was younger. Strong answer. Strong answer. Explains a lot. Oh my God, the orange tape. Oh man, I just gotta. You know, people people are talking about like, oh man, I'm a '90s baby. I'm a '90s kid. If you didn't have that orange Rugrats in Paris tape, get um, out of my face. Yeah, that was probably in 2001. But irregardless, mm-hmm. I don't know when it was. But um, God, Rugrats, Rugrats tape. I had like the Scooby Doo Zombie Island tape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which that freaked me out when I was a kid. I think I like had to shut it off one time. But uh, yeah. So de- Toy Story. I remember Toy seeing Toy Story in the movie theater. Wow. I do. And my, my mom always is like, no, you don't. You don't remember it. I'm like, yes, I do. I remember watching the opening credit scene where like they're spinning in the chair. I remember being okay. like a little kid looking up, seeing that on like a giant screen. I'm not I'm, I'm just saying, you know. I think the earliest member movie I can remember seeing in theaters was Tarzan, and the oh, only yeah. the only reason I can remember that because because I've seen that movie like since then and, and like I really liked it when I was a kid. The only reason I remember seeing it in theater was because I saw like those I don't know what the, in cigarette burns like as the, those little like dots that appear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they talk about it in Fight Club. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have we haven't talked about Fight Club. We that don't much. need to because <laughs> um, it's 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 an unimportant crap movie. Oh, next. But, yeah, the, the cigarette burns. Like I remember seeing one of those for the first time. Like ever in the movie, in the movie, I'm like, what? like on the screen. Yeah, I was like, yeah. what's that? And that's like haunted my dreams for like. I'm like, I'm like, what's that? Is the is the movie gonna like? Is the movie broken? Attack of the Clones. I remember seeing that in theaters, and mm-hmm. I remember it distinctly because my cousin brought an apple with them <laughs> into the theater, and like they they brought it to the beginning of the movie and then they didn't eat it the whole movie and then it just got gross and they like <laughs> then they stomped on it on the way out he's like stomped on the apple that's probably what they thought of the movie they were like man this movie sucked this stomp on the apple but I like, I like the turn this has taken <laughs> we probably do a whole episode just on you know great childhood memory movies yeah. but uh a whole in-depth analysis on rugrats in paris mm-hmm. um but yeah that that's it for today moving pictures um i want to give some shout outs to some good podcasts coming out of uh cm life right now we have the culture report uh pretty good hip-hop podcast uh we have let's get real um which kind of focuses on you know social justice issues current events in it together um a political podcast hosted by jeremy augusta you know sports guys raving geeks all of them they're killing it um mitch 
you work for CM Life. You're killing it. Uh, thank you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so thanks a lot for listening. Uh, this has been Moving Pictures. I was your host, Brent Gunn. I was your co-host, Mitchell Kakalka. And thank you for listening. He's lurking in the back, ready to attack. Why can't with peanut butter? Who drops the beast to make you stutter? I jump up on the spot.